And just before Swamiji speaks to us, I'd like to invite any kids in the audience to come up and say hello uh, to him and the rest of us will have an opportunity at the end. Welcome Siddhartha and Parvati also who are watching online. Okay. I also want to mention and welcome back to Satsang Nandini who just underwent surgery, so let's welcome her. Bodhicca. to begin my programs the way Baba used to by saying in Hindi, Sabko Varasanmane Kesat Premse Hardik Swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would never fail to say that that was the essence of spirituality, simply a movement of the heart to welcome another person with love. So in that spirit, I want to welcome you. And I want to also praise you all for uh, making your Taylor Swift tickets on yesterday or tomorrow night. So it's great consciousness. For those who are watching, where should I be looking, up there? For those who are watching uh, from outside of Melbourne, Melbourne is gripped by Taylor Swift fever. And she's doing three concerts here, including one now. Uh, and. Um, 
So I commend you for that great restraint. And those of you who are missing tonight, I know who you are. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> Davey Ma raced off. I didn't know where she was going. She had little bracelets on and all kinds of stuff and glitter. And <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> so, so, welcome everyone. So great. So great to be enjoying satsang with all of you. And tonight, um, uh, and satsang is a uh, time to celebrate the great beings, the great realizers. And my favorite part of spirituality are the great realizers who attained the self, who attained samadhi, who attained satori, who attained uh, self-realization or enlightenment. Uh, and I always say that these are the great uh, uncelebrated resource of humanity because they carry that wisdom, that energy, that shakti uh, of the divine, and they're eager to share it with people. Uh, unfortunately, at this stage of uh, evolution, not enough people are willing to uh, accept it, but I celebrate them every week. Uh, and tonight we're celebrating my favorite and main one, and that is, Swami Muktananda, my guru, uh, and the program tonight is uh, Baba on tour. Baba made three world tours. Baba was a disciple, obviously, of Bhagwan Nityananda. Bhagwan Nityananda, once he got to the Ganeshpuri area, he never left there. He did some traveling in his youth, but he settled down in Ganeshpuri. He was from South India and came up to uh, the Bombay area, and stayed in Ganeshpuri. Um, but uh, his teachings were powerful, and his shakti was powerful, and his great disciple, Baba Muktananda, was the one who carried it uh, to the world. Baba made three world tours, came to Australia three times. I was with him on his middle tour in Australia in 74, uh, and soon after that, he sent me away to run an ashram in Ann Arbor, Michigan. But this is Barbara on, on tour. What else do you have? Uh, well, you know who's in the background there? You recognize? Davy Ma is there. This is Bob in Los Angeles in uh, around 1980. And Alma is there and then Davy Ma behind. And uh, what else? One more? Bob in a relaxed mood. <clears throat> so, these are uh, question answers from from uh, those tours. You know, in the, on the tour, you know, I was with Baba the whole time uh, that that's covered in the Satsang with Baba books. 
those are the, the question answers with Baba in Ganeshpur. I was with him all those years. And then as soon as we hit uh, California, after we went to Australia, then went to California, then he sent me away immediately thereafter. And so I was only a visitor occasionally to the, the tour. I loved when it, you know, Baba, I had to wait till Baba told me to come. Because if I didn't wait, and I just showed up, he'd say, what are you doing here? Go back. And so I didn't do that. So occasionally he would invite me to come, and I'd be ecstatic, and I'd spend a little time there. <clears throat> but mostly I was not there. Here's a question. Here we go. <clears throat> oh, I forgot, you know, I've been... I've been, uh, I, I had a bunch of questions given to me in, um, in uh, Ganeshpuri while we were there, and I didn't get a chance to answer them all, so I thought I would answer them one by one. Uh, and I see uh, that Lakshmi is not here tonight, so when she's here, she, she gave me a... What? Yeah. She, okay. She, she gave me a list of questions, but this is a different one, so we'll do one tonight. Uh, Vani has it. What do you got? The question is, dearest Guruji, I love being a bhakti. I have so much inner dialogue of my love and devotion for the Guru. In saying that, I can never express this verbally. When I'm around you, I feel like a child. I freeze up and find it almost impossible to think. Is there any way to overcome this? <laughs> love heart, love heart, love heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I was like that with Baba. Um, and I was, uh, here I was uh, an academic, a mature adult. Um, uh, and uh, when I was around Baba, I was reduced to being like a six-month-old baby. I wouldn't say, um, well, one can see that this is so. I would just go, goo, goo, goo. Baba, do you love me? <laughs> so it's, it's not a matter of real concern. The, the personal relationship with the guru is sort of karmic. Um, and what's important is that, you, uh, that you're open to the guru, you love him, or have affection, and that you follow his teaching, you do his practices. Because the goal of it is not to have a relationship with a particular person, but to uh, know the self. That's what's really important. If you're lucky enough to have a natural and, and close relationship, that's great. Uh, but, you know, I came to this uh, watershed when I got to India, and there was Baba, and, um, you know, I adored him, and uh, I wanted to be close, and... He spoke Hindi, he didn't speak English. So at one point I said, should I speak, learn Hindi? Uh, and then I realized, I looked within myself and I saw that I had energy to know the self. I didn't really have energy to, to learn Hindi because that was really my business there. And so I never bothered to, and it didn't affect the relationship or kept it within its, its, uh, its a proper boundaries. I never felt a barrier with Baba on that. So go deeper into the self and you'll get very close to, to who the guru really is.
do the sadhana. Okay. So we'll do one each time, except when Parvati returns from Taylor Swift. We'll do that. <coughs> Here's a question. Isn't it hard to work after the mind has been dissolved? Well, that's a very fortunate question, isn't it? <coughs> was, was the person actually arguing? Because Baba seems to say you should give up having a mind. And Baba, Baba sets him straight. Baba, don't take that expression literally. I don't mean that the mind ceases to function, although one loses consciousness. You know, I had the same problem because the teaching seemed to be to obliter obliterate the mind, have no mind. And so Baba is saying it's not exactly like that. He says, just as water acquires the color of anything it comes in contact with, so does the mind. When the color of water changes, the water does not cease to be water. In the same way, when the mind merges into the inner self, it doesn't cease to function. It's not destroyed. Some people have an irrational fear in this matter because they don't understand what the phrase dissolution of the mind means. What is the nature of the mind? It is not an inert substance but the element of consciousness itself. When the energy is directed outward, it becomes what we call the mind. When it turns into the self, then we say that the mind is dissolved. And Baba here is really referring to a couple of sutras in the text called Pratyabhishna Vridayam. And it's, uh, one sutra says, uh, when the mind becomes when the self turns outward and becomes engaged with objects of the world, then the self becomes the mind. However, when the mind, through inner movement, rises up, it becomes consciousness itself. So this is the movement of it. So he's referring to that. Bible says, our sages have said that the inner self, though it lives in the mind, is yet separate from the mind. It cannot be known by the mind because the mind is its body. <clears throat> it makes the mind active. It is inner consciousness, the purest nectar. As long as that inner consciousness functions, a therapist need not fear that the mind will cease to function. The question must have been therapist. <clears throat> so, so the mind, it, it's really that when the mind takes refuge in the self, it's not driven by tendencies of fear and anger and greed and all these kinds of tendencies and jealousy. And because of that, the mind is quiet and still. And it only operates when you need it. Mind's, very, mind's tremendously useful to have at your disposal, like your arm or your leg. You want to have your arm you know, uh, but see, the mind is like an arm that keeps punching you in the mouth. <clears throat> That's not what you want. You want the arm to lie there and do what good things when you want it to. You don't want it to be doing things like that or punching someone else. You know, just sitting there, suddenly your mind goes out and hits somebody. <clears throat> but that's what our mind does. Our mind strikes other people and strikes ourselves, turns against ourselves. 
and so on. And this is caused by tendencies, some scars that exist within. And so as we meditate, we attenuate those tendencies and the mind becomes quiet and then we can use it for useful things like writing limericks and other things. <clears throat> Another question. Now oh, this is a good one. What is karma? Can we ever be free from it? I remember always Baba saying so many times, strange are the ways of karma. You just have to wonder about karma. And then you have to wonder about your own karma and uh, how, how our life is shaped by these cosmic forces. <clears throat> Baba says, karma results from the activities of the outer and the inner sense organs, particularly those activities which are motivated by desire. So desire creates karma. And you know, it's an in interesting uh, distinction in uh, Indian philosophy. We think of uh, that there are five senses, uh, sight, sound, touch, so on, taste. What did I leave out? Touch, taste, smell, right? Those are the five senses. But the, the, the Indian system adds uh, what they call the outer senses. And those are the arms and the, the legs and the organs of action. And so these create karma too. What you do also creates karma. Inner, inner and the outer uh, senses, he calls them. Indriyas, really. It's not really senses in the, that sense. Baba says, there are three kinds of karma, parabda, sanchita, and kriyaman. This is on the final exam, too. You have to remember this, right? <clears throat> sanchita is the karma which is accumulated during our previous incarnations. Parabda is the portion of sanchita which is pres presently active, and kriyaman results from our current actions and will bear fruit at some future time. The best analogy that I've heard that makes this crystal clear is that think about your karma as your, uh, a, a um, vessel of rice in your, in your uh, cupboard, right? You have a whole, uh, what would you carry, put rice in? A what? A jar. A jar? A canister. A canister. A canister. A canister of rice in there. And that's your, uh, <clears throat> that's your sanchita karma. That's all the karma that you have for the rest of your life. But then you want to take some of that rice for this meal. That's your karma for this life. You take a scoop and you take some and then you cook that rice. That's your parabda karma. That's the karma. There's still a batch of it in your canister um, that you're going to do in the future. But so each life that you live, you get rid of some of it, scoop of it, right? Um, now, kriyaman is the karma that you create with your own stupidity in this life. When you act out of fear, or anger, jealousy, and selfishness, and self-concern, all those things, when you do things like that, you create more karma, so more goes into the cupboard. Um, but a great being, a great being, it, it said, 
uh, has knocked out all his uh, karma in the cupboard, and he only has the karma of this life, the, the parabda. And it, it keeps diminishing because he doesn't create new karma, because he does acts that are pure, that come from the self, and not from the ego. <clears throat> so that's a good illustration. He says, Baba says, karma binds the soul. Past karma compels the soul to earn more karma and to suffer its consequences, whether we like it or not, for it acts through us by force. The seers have said that karma cannot be exhausted until it has been worked out. You know, when I used to meditate in Ganeshpuri, in the ashram, I used to feel that I could feel my karma and that I could, I could actually experience the resistance in me somewhere uh, to getting, going deep in meditation. I tried to go deep and I tried to still my mind and I'd feel that I was in a battle with some ten, these tendencies, whether they were tearing thoughts or old fantasies or whatever the heck it was, it would be in there. And, and then, I would, then I, would, I would get into a state where I would stop my mind by force, which after a while there I was able to do, but I could feel the tension that I was fighting against some force. While I was stopping my mind, I'd be fighting this force, and I realized that force that I was fighting was my karma. I was viscerally feeling that, like that. And so I was like in a war. It was really very exciting. <laughs> Baba says, here's a story which illustrates what I've been saying. It was raining and the river was in flood. A bear had been swept away by the rapid flow of water. He had no hope of living, nor could he die. He floundered, floundered desperately with his four limbs. Two friends were sitting on the bank and one said, look, there's a beautiful black robe floating down the river. Without stopping to think, the other jumped into the river and tried to grab hold of the robe with both hands. But the bear grabbed him with all four paws. Both struggled to keep from drowning. The bear tried to push the man down by getting on top of him, and the man tried to push the bear down by getting on top of him. Together they were swept down the river. The man began to cry to his friend for help, and the friend shouted, Let go of the robe and come back to the shore! I'm letting go of the robe, the drowning friend cried, but the robe won't let go of me. <laughs> Karma is like that bear. It doesn't let go of you. <laughs> you can, you'll try to let it go, but it grabs you. Once it has grabbed you, it won't let you go. You can be free of karma only in the state of akarma, or actionless. Lord Krishna says to Arjuna, through meditation, kindle the fire of knowledge within you, and that fire will burn away all your karma. It will consume your impurities and your sins, rendering you innocent and pure. You can burn it away by wisdom, by making intelligent choices, by seeing it through inquiry, and then you step around that karma and by meditating. <clears throat> Good, another one? 
What should a person do if the guru forsakes or curses him? What do you think? Is that interesting? Yeah. Yeah? You think you, you might be cursed by the guru? Forsaken? He says, Baba says, even if the guru forsakes the disciple, the disciple should not forsake the guru. You must know the story of Eklavya and Dronacharya. When Eklavya approached his guru, Dronacharya, Dronacharya did not accept him. However, Eklavya did not forsake his guru. Thereby, he attained everything. That's a, that's a Puranic story. Um, and it's, it's about Dronacharya, who was an archery guru. And in all the arts, you know, in those days, they would be just become disciples. They wouldn't just learn uh, a, an art. They would disciple themselves to the teacher and then gradually absorb the wisdom. Uh, so Dronacharya was a great archer. And Eklavya, who was uh, of the wrong caste, he was a tribal boy, an Adivasi, and he wanted to learn from Dronacharya, who was uh, uh, a, uh, a kind of princely, high caste character, and he wouldn't accept him as a, as a disciple because the caste system was very much in effect in those days. So, so uh, Eklavya was not daunted by it. He went back to his little hut and he built a clay image of Dronacharya and he worshipped the image. And according to the story, as he worshipped that image, all of Dronacharya's uh, skill and teachings and unseen passed into him by osmosis, because that's really the way the transmission happens. It happens uh, by osmosis. And so uh, he learned all the, all the shots that, uh, that the princes were learning without having to ever take a class. And then there's a charming story that I won't elaborate now, but anyway, he attained everything to his devotion. It also has a very unhappy ending, too. <clears throat> but only, yes, anyway, never mind, I'll tell you this another time. <clears throat> a guru will not curse you, Baba says. If a disciple makes many, many mistakes, the guru will tell him, go back to your home. <laughs> go away. But why should the guru curse his disciples? Guru bestowers of grace. And that is all that they do all the time. If there's a guru who has the power to curse somebody, even his apparent curse turns out to be beneficial. And then Baba tells another story. Once there were some sages in a place in Karnatak, a state in South India. They all believed in Shiva and worshipped the Shiva Lingam. This is the image of Shiva. <clears throat> Whenever the sages went into the river to take a dip, two monkeys, Nala and Nila, would go to the bank of the river, pick up the Shiva Lingam, and throw it into the water. We have a big Shiva Lingam here, and uh, it would take quite a strong monkey to throw it into the dam. But but finally, the sages got tired of the monkey's mischief. One day, one of the sages cursed them. He said, Oh, Nala and Nila, you're causing so much trouble. From now on, if you put anything in the water, it will never sink. The next day, the monkeys continued their mischief. They picked up the Shiva Lingam and threw it into the water, but the Lingam did not sink. Instead, it floated on the water. 
it was very easy for the sages to pick it up and return it to its proper place. As it happened, that curse turned into a great boon. Once Lord Ram, who was on a military expedition, wanted to cross the ocean very quickly and needed to build a bridge. It was actually to Sri Lanka, to, to Ceylon. Um, <clears throat> and uh, they say that that same bridge can be seen under the water now. It's still there. Uh, he took the help of Nala and Nila because when they put huge rocks into the ocean, the rocks would float. It was very easy to build a bridge, and they accomplished that task in no time. Ram and his army walked over the bridge to the other side of the ocean. <clears throat> Your question is crooked. A guru is one with God. If God is love, is not the guru also love? A true guru will never try to harm anyone. If a guru gives a curse, he is not a true guru. Even if a guru would, have, would ever curse you, he would do so knowing it will be good for your own good, just like the sages curse Nala and Nila. And then he tells another story. You want to hear this one? This is about, uh, in the Ramayana, a dialogue between Bharadwaja and Ramana Harshan, uh, who, when he was cursed, turned into a crow and given the name Kakabhushundi. Kakabhushundi, the, the famous crow. When <clears throat> he went to, because he had gone to Bharadwaja and asked him some questions about the knowledge of Brahman. And Bharadwaja systematically explained the truth to him. You are that, Maham Brahmasmi. After explaining something to a student, the teacher of Vedanta usually asks, have you understood? If the student answers no, then the teacher will explain it to him again. However, this, this student was full of ignorance and also full of ego. This is a very bad combination. Ignorance and ego. Very bad combination. I mean, other than running for president, I don't know what you could do. <clears throat> no matter how much Bharadwaja explained the truth to him, he refused to understand it. After explaining it clearly four times, in India the scriptural thing is three times. You can say everything three times. And when you really mean something, you repeat it three times. Bharadwaja said, if you can't understand this truth, then you're worthy of becoming a crow. At that very moment, Ramana Harshan became a crow. <clears throat> when he turned from a human being into a crow, immediately said, I accept the teaching. Wouldn't it have been better if he had accepted the truth when he was still a human being? He must have been arguing. He said, you are that, you are Brahman. He said, no, how can I be Brahman, brother? He says, well, it's like this. Your consciousness is the self and the same consciousness that is divine is in you, and therefore you're one. Well, that can't be true. So he finally got fed up with him. <clears throat> but it was only after he became a crow that Kakabhushundi began to understand that Bharadwaja had a great nectarian knowledge. Still, he began to wonder why it was that such a great sage as Bharadwaja would get angry and curse him. He wandered about for many years as a crow. And then one day he received an answer from within. He realized that if two pieces of sandalwood are rubbed against each other, they emit fragrance. Because sandalwood has its own quality, 
However, if a piece of sandalwood is rubbed against a piece of ordinary wood, they both catch fire. I wonder if that's what the Brahmins did in the yagna. They, they would rub sandalwood against ordinary wood, I wonder. Kakabashundi <clears throat> uh, realized that though his guru was full of great knowledge, he had been too full of ego to receive it. All he had been able to elicit from the guru was the fire of anger. So in that analogy, the guru was sandalwood, and he was ordinary wood, so created a combustion. Previously, he had been full of pride, but after he became a crow, he became humble and finally attained the truth. So Bharadwaja's curse was really a blessing. <clears throat> One more. That was good, huh? <clears throat> Question. I've always heard that the journey to the self is very painful. That, that's the question. <clears throat> Baba says, truly speaking, the journey is not so painful. It is only you who make it painful. <clears throat> Through the help of the self, the guru, and knowledge, this journey becomes very joyful, becomes our friend. In Maharashtra, there was a great saint called Eknat Maharaj, whose guru was a Siddha. Eknat was a very great poet, and he also wrote a commentary on the Bhagavatam called the Eknati Bhagavatam. In it, Eknat wrote, I will lead my worldly life with great happiness. I will fill all three worlds with bliss. <clears throat> I must mention that one of the things I remember from our question and answer with Baba is one time somebody asked him, uh, are you going to be reborn? And Baba said, well, <clears throat> if I do get reborn, I will do my sadhana with great bliss. And at that moment, I was burning my, in my sadhana. I was just frying. Um, it was a very difficult time. I was suffering a lot and going through inner stuff and inner tunnel. I said, what does he mean by do sadhana with great bliss? And that's what he meant. When you attain a certain goal, then you do the practice with great joy. It gave me a different perspective. It didn't help the burn. <clears throat> you should take the help of wisdom, Baba says, the self and the truth, then you can lead your worldly life very easily and with great joy. It means not ashram life, but living in the world. If you're in touch with the spirit, meditating every day and coming to satsang and thinking about the self, uh, then you can deal with your worldly issues much better because you have a connection to something higher. He says, <clears throat> your spiritual life will also be very easy and joyful. It's completely wrong to say that meditation is difficult. Meditation is the elder brother of sleep. <clears throat> so he's saying that, saying, he's saying equating spiritual life with meditation. Bible says meditation is the essence of spiritual life. To put aside enough time to meditate and to focus on the self and to feel, get really in touch with that inner being and be able to penetrate the inner obstacles that are there and go down to the joy that's beneath it. <clears throat> he says, meditation lies just behind sleep. The deep sleep state is beyond the waking and dream states, 
and the Turiya state, or the state of meditation, lies beyond the deep sleep state. Meditation is so natural. Just as you prepare yourself to sleep very peacefully, in the same way you should prepare yourself to meditate, then you'll find it very easy and very joyful and very peaceful. <clears throat> There's nothing greater than meditation. There's no path easier than meditation. Meditation is greater than lectures on spirituality. Those polished words are like the delicious food you read about in a cookbook. If you just keep reading the cookbook, you don't cook anything. You'll starve to death. That is what people do in spirituality. They go on on and on reading books, but they don't make the food. <clears throat> just by reading and reading and listening and listening, you won't attain anything. You should meditate. Meditating is like cooking delicious food. Very delicious food is created within you. These days, people mainly give talks and seldom act. In Vedanta, there's a saying that a person who just keeps talking is like a ladle that doesn't know how to taste kheer, sweet Indian pudding. So kheer is a sweet that we used to serve in the ashram, wonderful sweet we sometimes have here. He says, kheer is served with a long wooden spoon. The spoon makes a noise when it serves people. It says, take this kheer, take this kheer, take this kheer, but it itself doesn't know the taste of kheer but it tells everyone else to take the cure. It serves it, but doesn't have it. Get it? <clears throat> That's what happens when people talk too much about spirituality. They don't get the taste of what they're talking about. I'm feeling that I should end this lecture soon. <laughs> <laughs> so speak a little, and listen a little, a little, and then you can do a lot. If you spend all your time talking and listening, what do you get? Nothing in your hands. Meditation is absolutely necessary, but you have to meditate in a very disciplined way. Just as you go to sleep in a disciplined manner, you may be an artist, musician, a professor, a principal, a scholar, a secretary, or a minister. <clears throat> Whatever you are, you go to sleep. When you go to sleep, you feel rested. You experience peace. And in the morning, if someone asks you how you slept, you say, I had a very sound sleep, and I feel very satisfied now. My exhaustion is gone. Just as all your tiredness is removed by sleep, in the same way, you have to meditate to feel the supreme rest. You should meditate, and you should awaken your inner shakti completely, the inner kundalini energy. Once the inner shakti is awakened, you will it will live with you, all the time. Even if you give it up, it still will be there with you. So well, what should we do now? What do you recommend? We'll meditate. So we'll meditate for 10 minutes. <clears throat> and as Baba says, uh, spirituality is what I call second education. First education is uh, theory and intellect and, and um, uh, lectures and uh, all of that. But second education is direct experience. And so what really counts in spiritual life is to meditate for ourselves. The sages tell us 
what to do and what to expect and so on. Uh, but each of us has to go into our inner being and connect to that place inside and see if we verify what the sages say. Is there indeed a place of joy inside me? Is there a place of peace inside me? Is there a place of contentment inside me? And if we listen to the teachings of the sage, we can go with a lot of faith, a lot of conviction that we'll find that. They all say that, every one of them says that, that the goal can be attained and it exists within every one of us. So we'll meditate now for 10 minutes. And to meditate, you just focus on consciousness at the source of the mind. And if that's too abstract, you can use the mantra, which is not nicely displayed now. The mantra of our lineage, Om Namah Shivaya, which means I bow to the self, I bow to Shiva, divine consciousness. You can repeat that and let the mind become quiet. Or you can use any other mantra or even a word like peace or joy or love and focus on that and then let that take you to the space within, the clear space of good feeling. So let's meditate now for 10 minutes. And once again, with great love and respect, I welcome you all with all my heart. Sat Maharaj Ki Jai. We'll meditate for 10 minutes.